Welcome to the Business Matters In Conversation podcast with me, Richard Alvin, where each week I get to speak to some of the UK's leading entrepreneurs, business advisors, and those behind UK's business growth. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Tevin Tobin, the award-winning entrepreneur and founder and CEO of logistics company GV Group. Kevin, that in no way uh, gives away your full bio. So do you want to just spend a minute or so just to tell the listeners exactly who you are? Um, my name is Tevin Tobin. I'm the founder and CEO of GV Group. And um, we are a multi-layered and multi-sector logistics business. And we have portfolio and companies in logistics, last mile logistics, technology, infrastructure and energy support services. Okay, you're sending yourself a little bit short there, Tevin, uh, because uh, also one of your subsidiary companies, Platebox, um, now um, delivers, uh, I think it was at the start of the pandemic, 10 million. I think it's now increased substantially more um, uh, lunch, lunches to schools across the UK. Give me, do you want to tell us a little bit, a little bit of background um, to that? So um, Platebox is our school and education division, um, and we support contract caterers and local authorities by transporting all the lunches from schools that have no kitchen to schools that do. And this really is a way of mitigating any issues around kitchen, guaranteeing that the kids can have a fully hot meal for the day, which, as most people know, is actually probably one of the most important meals of the day. Um, And we kind of support schools and local authorities from the north of England all the way to the south coast. Okay. Um, logistics, um, essentially, has probably had a boom period over the last 18 months uh, with the pandemic and not, people not being able to go out and shop, etc. Um, you know, I suppose begs the question, how have you actually found um, the work life and the period um, from sort of the mid-March last year? Um, it's a very interesting, topsy-turvy time, you know, as uh, like any other business leader, when the pandemic started, you kind of just batten down the hatches, have conversations with your team, look at how do we really kind of navigate this kind of volatile world. Um, So the first thing we did is just kind of take away a lot of the kind of restrictive framework and just really empowered all managers, regional operations managers to make decisions and just allow them to know that actually, even if you make mistakes, we'll correct them, we'll move on. And I think that took away a lot of the kind of red tape and decision-making and we flipped the whole company on its head where actually the senior leaders became the support services and the kind of junior managers then led the company. And what that meant really is if you take Leicester, for example, so Leicester at one point was on lockdown when some parts of the country weren't. And we that allowed a regional manager in Leicester to make decisions for Leicester and allowed us to kind of take them as the kind of lead in the project and just make very quick decisions. And also just... Um, initially, when it first started, I think it impacted some, some of our division of business because some of our logistics is a B2B businesses. So you had restaurants and hotels shut. So that impacted us. But we were able to kind of pivot very quickly into some of the retail side, which was obviously booming because everyone was at home. But I think the biggest thing really to learn from the pandemic is to remember that your business must be agile. And the fluidity across the business is the most fundamental thing. Um, and, and for me, that's probably the biggest thing the pandemic's taught me. Okay. Um, how large is the business? So, you know, are we talking, uh, you know, a senior leadership team of 10, 15, 20 with, uh, you know, what, what, does the, what does the actual sort of organisational structure look like? So, so we have... Um, 
we so if you take me the CEO, we have divisional directors. So each of the companies has a division director. They report to me, and they kind of then have their own operations directors and managers. And then we're the, across all the business about a thousand employees. But I think the key really is not to have all these structures and make decision making very very difficult. It's about making decisions very quickly, cascading down the line, and people getting things done. So that's kind of our structure is quite simple. And, and, and remove any red tape completely. It's a true entrepreneurial business. Absolutely, yeah, sounds it. Um, have you found uh, sort of issues with regard to hiring staff, etc.? You hear about these sort of HGV driver crisis and stuff like that. Um, have, you, have you seen any of that? Yeah, the industry is obviously plagued with the issues around staff hiring. Um, but I, I think there's a positive to this. And that positivity is that actually finally drivers are recognized for how important they are. Um, what happens is when you look at the structure of a business, everyone's kind of obsessed with the leaders, but actually drivers are the people who make that business work. And what this is now forcing all of us to do is rethink how we really look after our drivers. So yes, it's been tough and it's tough for most businesses, but I think it's shifted our priority to understand that actually the people that keep the business ticking are just as important as the leaders. Okay. Um, have you actually had to invest, invest in new fleet and stuff like that uh, you know, to, to actually grow over the last period? Yeah, so we've invested about a million quid on some new vehicles. Um, we're looking at more additional investment around electric. Um, we're also looking at how we track vehicle movement to reduce stem miles. So stem miles are just the kind of time you use to get from one place to another or you kind of leave the vehicle idle and things like that. And really, it's just about creating a level of discipline that actually every person in a vehicle understands that you must use that vehicle purely for the sole purpose of delivering a service. And all this other additional wastage actually impacts the climate. So a lot of the work we're now looking at is looking at technology around reducing those things and additional investment around electric vehicles. Are you hoping to to have your whole fleet electric by a certain milestone or a date, or yeah, so, are you just going to take it as it comes? So we're, we're working very hard to... So the, the challenges that we have at the moment is that some of our vehicles obviously have multi-temperature and the industry and, and the payload that we need. So there's a couple of batteries in the industry that we're reviewing at the moment, but the plan, the long-term plan, is to really completely overhaul our fleet. Okay. Um, by a set date or just, just you know, literally as they come up for lease renewals or whatever else? Just, yeah. It's a mix. It's a mix. Um, some, some of the assets we own ourselves, so those we can quickly kind of make a, a, a plan to replace. We're also talking to the leasing company, and I have to say some of them would be very helpful to allow us to kind of maybe cancel the lease and agreement early and shift into a new vehicle's. But these conversations are happening now and also they're happening in tandem and simultaneously to new technologies. So if there's a new technology down the line and we think actually there's the right battery that can kind of take this, we're making plan ahead of that and then switching the vehicles. And you would see there'll be way more investments coming as we go along around kind of overhauling the whole fleet. Okay. Um, obviously, you, you seem to have a quite a good sort of uh, strong belief in mean, giving back, etc. Um, you know, I know that you've uh, been uh, regarded and highly commended as being one of the, the best young black uh, British uh, entrepreneurs in the UK, etc., by the IOD and others. Um, do you think it's important um, to, to, to almost be that role model to, to other black uh, 
not just business people, but just black uh, male and female uh, people looking looking for the in the workplace, etc., to almost not give them a hand up, but but almost you know look to be that sort of guiding guiding arm on their shoulder, so to speak. Um, so one quick point of correction. So the IOD award is actually just a young director. Oh, sorry. Um, it's just a complete, just young director. Um, but but in terms of supporting, I, I think if you look through the history of what I do, I think I'm big on supporting disadvantaged people. And I'm also, it's a very close thing, very close thing to my heart to, to really help and encourage people who need opportunities. Um, I, as a, as a founding CEO, someone gave me a chance and people have continued to give me chances throughout my life. And I think I, I see it as a, as a simple give back. People give me a chance. I give other people a chance. They give other people a chance. So um, through my foundation, the Tobin Foundation, we provide laptops and other um, educational equipment to children. We pay for evening classes. We also pay for Saturday classes. Um, and the idea is that you give children respite, you give parents respite, but you also give them something to do. And the, the kind of overarching part of this is they do better at school. And you, you keep them confidence to know that actually you can do well at school. You might need additional support, but there are other part of the community that can support you. And this really, for me, um, I know people talk about the government doing its bit, but actually as citizens, we must also do our bit. And, and that's just the bit that I've kind of chosen to do. Um, obviously, you know your 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 company supplies uh, you know, the lunches, etc. And obviously, Marcus Rashford, uh, you know, a year ago was very vociferous about you know how the government should be supporting that and, and continuing that and and so on and so forth. You know, uh, when the schools were closed, etc. And I know that obviously you're also um, chair of Inspirational U, a, a London-based social mm-hmm. enterprise for young people. Um, you know, how do they get involved, and how has how has their work been sort of challenged? Um, during the last 18 months um, um, when you know, think, the structures haven't normally, you know, ha- the normal structures haven't been in place. Yeah, I, I think the, the, the like any other organisation, the, the fact that you just couldn't kind of physically meet people meant that you had to kind of digitalise your whole approach. And one of the things that one of the other founders, actually, she's a real IT buff. So, I think one of the things that she wanted to do was move to the digital part of this. And I think that quick movement of digitalizing relationship and also just just almost kind of creating an, an environment where people can interact via Zoom teams meant that you can kind of have this impromptu get together and people didn't have to leave their houses. So you didn't have to kind of have this big event. And, and, and that's how they've kind of pivoted to making things more digital. The, the plan going forward is actually creating a hybrid situation where we can have some digital event and some face-to-face event. And in terms of um, Marcus Rashford, I think there's a, it's mixed feelings because I think I, I, I just don't want to be in a country that we have children that can't have proper meal. Um, and, and I think that we must also you would hear me numerous times saying we must also play a part. Um, I, I'm just not one to constantly wait for the government to do things. I think we must also play a part. I First of all, I think I commend his leadership, his thought, um, just how assertive 
he is in in kind of just hearing out his thought and the government also doing something about it. So essentially, um, I'm reading between the lines, you're almost saying that you're pleased with regard to the, you know, the, the, the rise in national, national insurance, etc. I know that's obviously for social care for elderly, um, but about the same token, you know, everyone doing their little bit extra to, uh, to actually come together to, to help um, you know, less privileged and, you know, it, admittedly, slightly older, but also, you know, less privileged full stop. Um, the, the thing is, the, the, the government has decided that raising national insurance on a social care is, is the prudent way of doing this. But I think what we've also learned in the last 18 months is just how important this actual social care and the health care is to this country. Um, I know the numbers are high, but one thing that we must not take for granted in the United Kingdom is that you can walk into a hospital and know that someone will treat you no matter who you are. Um, in the 21st century, that's a fundamental human right for anybody. Um, and I think the, 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 the truth is nobody likes any increment in, in any form of taxation. Um, but I think what we also have to understand is we are a very unique country, um, unique in the sense that healthcare and your well-being is not based on your class system or anything. It's just based on you as a human being. And I think that balance is very, very difficult to strike. So, uh, and I think you would have very different opinions. I think you would have people who think this is the right thing. You have people who think it's not the right thing. But what I do know is I would always want to be in a country where everybody has the right to healthcare. Okay. Um, if we if we sort of uh, get off get off from a political point of view and go back to to, to your business etc. Now, um, how have you actually been able to grow? Not just about the 80, last eighteen months, but how have you been able to grow from that very early kernel of starting the business straight out of university to being you know the a company that's that's able to throw a million pounds at investing in in technology, so you know, a, a new vehicle. So you clearly have a turnover well, well in excess of I'm assuming ten million. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think for me, very early growth was part of the plan. Um, my very first business, which was like a wholesale business, I sold it purely because I knew that actually. I needed to create a business that had the right structure that we can focus on growth. Um, we focus so much on reputation. Um, and also we focus so much on creating a very agile business. Um, a lot of our clients are multinationals. And we, if I can use a kind of um, ocean analysis, so if you imagine a ship tanker, a tanker is trying to kind of turn, but then you have speedboats we create the speedboat version of this where we can turn things around quickly, we can be agile, we can create fluidity through decision-making, and we can just make things happen very quickly. And also just think about innovation, allow the culture to encourage people to be innovative, but also allowing people to be open and be confident of giving you ideas and running the ideas if it works, and if it doesn't, we'll try something else. And that really has been the fundamental part of our growth just really creating a very fluid and agile business. Okay. Um, what, what does that sort of fluid and agile actually mean in real terms, sort of down on the ground? So in so much as, you know, uh, you said you've got a fairly flat-ish organisational structure, so to speak. Um, so, you know, if one of the drivers actually came up with an idea, 
you know, how would they be able to sort of, are they empowered to go and do it? Or, you know, how easy is it to, to get to, you know, their divisional director, uh, you know, a meeting with them or whatever, or literally just pick up the phone and, and hit you up with the idea? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a pertinent example. So um, it took me, I think, the best part of nine to 10 years before I had a chief executive on my business card. Um, purely because I understand very early that actually um, a CEO is just a kind of designated leader of a business. The people who made that business tick are the people who give their blood, sweat and tears every day. Not that CEOs don't. And for me, it was important that actually we all carry that same importance. So um, during the pandemic, a member of staff said, look, um, we would like a system that checks on every person across the company. Um, and they spoke to the divisional director. She brought it to our weekly meeting. And a day after that, we put a system in place that there were groups of people who called people who were sitting out on furlough, who were off sick, who members of their family might be sick, whatever it is, whatever, even if you were anxious about pandemic, you just, you had someone to talk to. And, I was heartened by that because actually, as a business leader, you get so focused on how do we kind of steady the ship and how do we, and for someone to say, well, whilst we're doing that, we want to be checking on our colleagues. And that really was, and, and that's kind of one of the things that we, we do. So within 24 hours, there was a system set up, people are receiving calls, and that might be really one of the most important things that we did during the pandemic, because we didn't just say that our staff were important. We proved to them that they were important. And people just appreciated that because, because you then realize that actually this person lives by themselves. Going to work was part of their livelihood, their lifestyle. All of a sudden, they're in this house by themselves. They can't call to neighbor. They can't call to anyone. But the relationship they had with their workmates was the only relationship that they had. So that phone call became so important that actually some of those people started volunteering to help call other people. And for me, that just represents the kind of company that I want to lead. Yeah, well, that makes absolute sense. And it's very commendable. So, um, so yeah. Um, has the pandemic uh, brought about a change in your working patterns? So, you know, did everyone go into a central head office that you now don't do or your central or, or regional offices that you now don't do anymore? Are you looking to adapt that working, that working style for a hybrid model? Yeah, so for, for quite a while, um, we all worked from home. Um, and then people said, actually, they, they want a little bit of interaction. And the staff said a hybrid solution is what they prefer. Um, but fundamentally, what the pandemic's done is, is put our staff in, in the heart of everything. Um, there was, the, um, at, at all times, that was what we did. But actually, now, I think this is focused everybody's minds that this is the way forward. So we have a hybrid solution. Some people go into the office two days a week. Some people go three days a week. But we've um, allowed people to also not go from spending a lot of time with your family to kind of going back to this crazy, awesome, bustle lifestyle. So we're allowing people to, you know, we have people who, you know, during the pandemic and when the restrictions were lifted, they took their children to football games. So now we're saying, well, hang on, keep that going. Um, because those are also important things. Um, and, and so now that's kind of one of the things we've created, that we've created a hybrid solution where 
people can still be present in their family lives and be present at work. And I think, uh, you, know, you know, we operate as a company, we operate as a hybrid model, but we've been doing it since 2010, uh, fairly uniquely. But I do think, you know, for, for listeners, et cetera, and, and you've just exemplified that, I think that um, companies which do operate a hybrid model of whatever that looks like, um, but but ceases to have that sort of nine to five rigid framework where you have to, you know, leave your house, come to the office, do work, and then, you know, shuffle off home again. Um, is is pretty much old uh, and dead thinking, um, and it is a much more flexible. It's all about output, really. Um, you know, obviously, you know, in logistics terms, you can't do that much flexibility because if you tell a, a customer that you're going to, or you know, they require you to deliver between eight and two or something, you have to deliver between eight and two. Um, but at the same time, back office functions and other things can be flexible. You don't need to uh, to be operating such a rigid structure. And also, we have a lot of technology that allows you not to be sad. At it. Look, the, the thing is, people, the, te- the pandemic's taught all of us that actually you can do things without actually being in, a, in, a, in an office. So, and we have enough technology to, to that you can monitor most of the things that we do in without really sitting in an office. But I think what is even more important is just staff well-being and welfare. So that that pandemic's really allowed that balance to kind of come through. And I and I'm not look. I, I, the jury's still out that you get less efficiency. I'm not, I don't know if I'm convinced because actually what you do is people, some people start to feel guilty and do more work in the evening. So one of the other things that we're now starting to do is saying, look, don't, don't go home and start doing even more work. I don't want to 10, 11 p.m. emails. Spend that time with your family or spend that time doing whatever you choose to because that's the that's the flip side of this that actually... You create this environment where people are constantly guilty and they're sending you 11, 1 a.m. emails, but yet they're still up the next morning. And we just got to find that that balance. And 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 you know, honestly, I think I think over time, people will find what works for them and their companies and how they should move forward. But but it wouldn't be a one size fits all. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, apart from obviously the obvious thing about, as we just talked about, a hybrid model, etc. Where do you see both your business and also businesses in your sector um, sort of going in the next two to three, you know, maybe even five, five years or so? You know, and also is Brexit having that much of an impact in in the the, the sort of the supply chain elements um, of the logistics space? I, th- I think the challenge um, with supply chain is that. You, you had Brexit and then you had the pandemic and the Brexit really happened in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and people are kind of trying to deal with two unpredictable kind of factors. But more than anything, um, and also the change and getting used to the change. But what we do know historically is that people eventually find a way to work through this. They iron out the kinks and they get a, a system going. But in terms of pandemic and and the effect on supply chain, I think it would really kind of focus the minds of companies in supply chain to just be a bit much more efficient, um, push the boundaries a bit more, focus on the sustainability and create a much more agile business to allow it to deal with volatility that might come from, you know, just factors like this that we can't see. Of course, this is a very unique time where, pandemics has affected the world globally. But, you know, there are other bubbling things that happen normally 
and you just you got to create a very agile business that can deal with those factors as and when they come. So yeah, my prediction in the next few years is you'll see much leaner um, and much more efficient supply chain businesses. You would see that actually they would push themselves to be a bit more reactive to innovation, and 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 I think they would create a much more process and system that allows that innovation to turn itself around much more quicker. Would you say as well? Um, the fact that your business is agile also allowed you to, I won't say mop up, but but almost read between the lines and dodge some bullets with regard to some of the conflicting sort of issues around Brexit, etc. You know, especially in the you know in the logistics space, because you know you thought you know you'd need this document, that document, and get this done and that done by a certain date. And then those dates changed and so on and so forth. And some of your large arrivals, I would assume, took longer to react. So, so one of the very unique things about us as a business is that I came into the industry really turning it on its head. So I'll give you an example. We, we were one of the only companies that set up a logistics business without depots. Because my argument 20 years ago was that, well, if the people you work with have depots, why do you need another depot? Um, and 20 years ago, that sounded like clever, but actually what would be the point of having two depots to do the same thing and manage the same client? So, so I was already known as this kind of outlier kind of thing very differently. Um, and I'm constantly never following the kind of pack, so to speak. So I, I always allowed myself to think, here's a problem. How do we look at it in a very different way? How do we resolve it? How do we also take away all these restrictions just to allow free thinking. Um, don't get me wrong, we don't always get things right, but what free thinking allows is it allows a flow of ideas. And ideas don't always come from people at the top. As a matter of fact, I don't think it comes from people at the top at all. Um, because people that deal with things on a day-to-day know the effect that it has on them. And the key really for leaders is you take those things on board we engage those people and we come up with a solution or some kind of solution that can kind of help turn things around. So for us, the key is to have that speedboat approach where we're going this way, that doesn't work, you turn left and we go around and that will get us back to the destination, but we've got to keep moving and just allowing people to take control and, and also empowering them because the one thing allowing people, but you must also empower them to be okay with making mistakes. For a junior person to not think, oh, God, I'm sitting in front of the CEO. If I get this wrong, I'm never getting a promotion. But actually letting them know that getting it wrong is okay. I started with no knowledge of logistics. And my background is biomedical sciences. So I ultimately know what it means to try and get it wrong and try again. So fundamentally, and, and for me, that's what I think that an entrepreneurial business is about that pushing people to try their ideas, creating an ecosystem that allows those ideas to flourish. And if they don't work, tweaking them, but just encouraging people to be the best version of themselves and pushing themselves. So giving that thinking, um, and you are a graduate, you started you know, the, the, your first company straight out of university. Would you say that having a university education was important uh, or a hindrance actually to not just your you know, thinking, but an actual, a, a normal entrepreneurial mindset? That's a great question. And many people ask me this question all the time. Um, 
so I'll tell you personally my own story. So I didn't need a degree to start my own business. What I think university did for me was take away the, the inferiority complex that you can have sometimes when you're doing deals. And it gets you into a room and you don't feel like, oh God, it sounded a bit clever. I don't really know what I'm saying. Um, so uh, do you need a degree to start a business? No, not necessarily. But I think the biggest part of being in business is confidence. And it would just be one less thing to worry about sometimes. Um, and, and I see it because I think, I, I think you, you, when people have kind of gone through this process, you see sometimes the confidence they have, even when they're not the subject matter expert, but they have a degree of understanding and confidence that they think, well, hang on, I can give my opinion and not have to worry about anyone else in the room. So that, that's kind of my personal take on it. That's some great advice there to wrap up with, Tevin. Thank you very much for your time today. Joining me in conversation with Business Matters. Hopefully you've liked this podcast today. Don't forget to tell your friends and also like and subscribe wherever you receive your podcast. This podcast was produced by the Capital Business Media Group and the Business Matters Brand Limited.